You can open up your Bible to the book of 2 Corinthians, uh, chapter 8. That's where we're going to start this morning. Uh, the last few months, we've been in 1 Corinthians, and we just ended uh, that series last week, uh, which was wonderful uh, to remember the, of what is of first importance, the good news of Jesus. Uh, and uh, now we get to take a one-week break before we jump into Advent season next Sunday uh, to, to speak from the second letter that we have uh, that Paul wrote uh, to the church at Corinth, and we're going to be talking about the subject of, of generosity uh, under the title of Thanks and Giving in the spirit of this week. Uh, just to give you a heads up, if you have not thought about this or anticipated this yet, uh, beginning this week, you are going to start to be bombarded for several weeks with all sorts of requests for money. Uh, there's going to be all sorts of people who are telling you how to spend certain things, what to buy, what to give to, just to prep you for what some of those will be. And some of these may be exciting to you. Some of these may make you roll your eyes or dread these things. But uh, Thursday is Thanksgiving, which means that the day after that is Black Friday. So there's going to be ads galore telling you what deals that you should uh that you should take advantage of to buy certain things. That's when Salvation Army's little kettles will be out at every store with the bell ringers uh, asking you to, to drop coins in uh, to, to uh, further the mission of Salvation Army. Uh, next Monday, not tomorrow, but the next Monday, eight days from now, is what people call Cyber Monday. So now in the online world, there's going to be deals that will come to you and, and people are calling for you to buy certain things. Then the day after that, uh, several years ago, uh, people developed something called Giving Tuesday. Uh, I think because we felt bad about buying all sorts of stuff for ourselves, we said, hey, we should at least have one day uh, that we give away to others. So that's coming up, Giving Tuesday, nine days from now, where you'll get all sorts of requests to, to give to nonprofits and things like that. And that's just the start. So then the next month, there's going to be Christmas ads galore at the end of the year. And we do things like this as a church, so I'm not saying these are bad things, but you'll get less and requests to do year-end donations uh, to different organizations and groups, uh, you're going to get bombarded with people and voices telling you, give us your money, use your money this way, buy this. You're gonna, it's just an onslaught of voices, and they're going to appeal to different things in you. They're gonna, and they might always have this be at the front of what they say, but they're going to try to tap into certain motivations within you, uh, as good marketers would do. They may tap into sentimentality, like, oh, if you get this for your grandkid, just imagine how happy they would be. Why don't you come buy this thing? And they may tap into, uh, if you're frugal, into savings. Like, look at what a good deal this is. It would have cost this, but now it's slashed down to this, how much you can save. Uh, they may tap into what I would call like self-indulgence. That, hey, uh, you're tempted to spend on everybody else, but why don't you do, be nice to yourself for once? Get such and such for yourself they may tap into, I hope they don't do this, but into shame even of guilting you into giving to certain things or trying to, to tell you if you don't do this, imagine what bad things are going to happen uh, so they can tap into shame. Or they may even tap into what I would call satisfaction, that they want you to feel good about yourself because you give to certain things, because you invest in certain ways. There's all sorts of motivations and things that are going to be beneath the surface that they're trying to tap in as they ask you or tell you to use your money 
in certain ways. And so you are going to hear those voices. We can't escape them. Even as I was preparing this sermon, I, had, I listened to Lord of the Rings soundtracks. That's glorious when you're prepping a sermon. Uh, but in between those, there's these little ads on Spotify. You should buy this on Black Friday. It's everywhere. You can't avoid it. There will be voices telling you uh, what to spend and what to give your money to. But the voice that should matter the most is probably the one we proactively seek the least, and that's the voice of God, the one who made us, the one who governs us, the one who tells us what is right and what is good to do in life. And he is far from silent about the subject of money and far from silent about the subject of generosity. He spoke often and frequently. He spoke clearly about this subject. And there's tons of texts we could go to to think about generosity as we enter into this season. But 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, which we're going to cover parts of both of those chapters, I would say is one of the richest, pun intended, uh, texts about this subject in all the scriptures. Uh, that, that speaks to the motivation of the heart of why we should give and what should then be the result, what should be our aim as we give towards certain people and certain things. It speaks very clearly about those. And in, in the spirit of Thanksgiving week, we're going to see that thankfulness is intimately tied with generosity. Thankfulness and generosity go hand in hand. And uh, as we walk through these texts, the, the heading I'll, I'll put uh, Paul's words under uh, for our sake today are this. The summary of the today's sermon would be this, is that thankfulness should be the fuel and the fruit of our generosity. So that should be what fuels us to be generous, what motivates us, but it should also be the result of our generosity, is that as we give, there will be more and more thankfulness that crops up, that grows out in others. So it should be the fuel of generosity, and it should be the fruit of generosity. And so uh, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and reading the words of the Apostle Paul to the same church we've read his words about, uh, or read his words to the last few months. This is the, uh, just a little bit later in time, him writing another letter to that same church. And so we'll walk through four headings today as we go through these chapters of the Bible. And we're going to have to bypass some things that we're trying to cover two chapters. So uh, we'll kind of do a high altitude uh, sweep through these two chapters, but I trust that they'll be uh, beneficial to us. So uh, if you're in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I want to start uh, under the heading of the Macedonians' generosity. And you'll see who the Macedonians are here in just a second. But I'm going to read the first seven verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So follow along with me as we read God's word and begin to, to see what it would have to say to us. So Paul wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the church at Corinth. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, See that you excel in this act of grace also. 
So we see here that Paul, is, he's starting, he's going to say much more about generosity to this church at Corinth. He's going to point them to the generosity of this of these other churches that are in an area known as Macedonia. Uh, this would have been churches uh, that we actually read about in the New Testament, like the church at Philippi, the church at Thessalonica. In the book of Acts, you read about this church at Berea. This, these would have been the churches he's talking about. And he's referring them to the generosity that those other churches demonstrated. And what you see here is remarkable. I have read this so many times this week, and I just marvel at what he is saying took place amongst them. I don't know if you picked up on everything that was going on here, but if you read of what he's referring to about these churches at Macedonia, he said that they had been, in verse 2, in a severe test of affliction. We don't know exactly what that means or what was going on there. We're not privy to that backstory all the time. But there's this severe affliction that these churches are going through, maybe persecution. But we know at least part of the affliction that they were enduring was that they had come to a point of experiencing what he calls in verse 2 extreme poverty. Rock bottom poverty, I heard one commentator say, where they had just reached this depth of poverty that was hard to even encapsulate in words. So they were afflicted and they were in rock-bottom poverty. Here in verse 2, Paul says as he keeps going, he says that this oh, their experience overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. And if you just stop there at the end of verse 2, I would think it meant that people were generous to them. That people had heard about the Macedonians thought, man, they're in this severe poverty, this extreme poverty, we should give to them. But he says it's generosity on their part, meaning, start of verse 3, they gave. And he says that they gave according to their means, which would have not been a whole lot, because they don't even have a lot to give. But he says, even beyond their means, in verse 3. That these people who had very little showed a wealth of generosity. That's this remarkable thing. They, there's no way they could have given a lot, but compared to what they had, they gave abundantly. They gave above and beyond uh, what one would expect of them. And I, I thought about this uh, just a handful of weeks ago. I heard from a, a, uh, one of our, our workers here, one of our volunteers now, Deborah, who works at Fellowship Mission, and she was telling me uh, Fellowship Mission is a, a local place for folks who are homeless in our community. And she was telling us with a smile on her face how residents at the homeless shelter had done a clothes drive for others. I just remember shaking my head inside thinking, wow, like I barely am willing to give of my own things sometimes, and I have more than plenty. And here's brothers and sisters in our own town who have very little who are willing to be generous with it. That is what was going on, but on a grander scale in Macedonia, in these churches, these people had very little, were showing extreme generosity. And I love uh, that he says in verse 3 that it was of their own accord at the end of the sentence. It wasn't like somebody was guilting them into doing it, somebody was making them do it, but they wanted to do it. They wanted to be generous. And look at the start of verse 4. I love this. Most of your translations, I think, probably say it this way at the start of 4. They were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. I love that phrase, that they were begging for the chance to give. Not to be given to, not begging for people to give to them. They were begging the apostles. They were begging these leaders, like, please let us help. Like, please let us give. They were not begging to be given to, but begging to give. 
It's this beautiful thing. And so what's probably going on here, this collection for the relief of the saints, uh, we read about it in different places in the New Testament, but there was this extreme poverty also being experienced and persecution in the city of Jerusalem and early Christians there. And these churches from all over were taking up offerings to then give to the people in Jerusalem, to give to the church at Jerusalem, to care for the people who were in need. And so that's what they were begging to be part of. But the question is this, is, for our purposes today and what Paul is going to talk about, is what motivated them to do that? What would possess a whole group of churches who are in extreme poverty to have a wealth of generosity, to, to give for the sake of others? What fueled it? And you get a, a clue back in verse 2. We personally kind of glanced over this, but I want to return to it, verse 2. Because he doesn't just say it was their extreme poverty that overflowed in generosity. He says their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity. So alongside their poverty, they also had this abundance of joy. When they had no money, or very, very, very little money and possessions and land and whatnot, they had an abundance, an overflow of joy. And that is what led, that's what overflowed for them to be generous to others, was this overflowing joy. Well, that just kind of begs the question of why were they joyful? What was it that, that they knew, that they held on to, that, that would make them joyful in the midst of affliction, that would make them joyful to the point of wanting to overflow in generosity to others? And this was not just that they were a happy lot of people. They were just some great group of, of human beings there in Macedonia who just kind of like are, are happy-go-lucky and always joyful. There was a reason they were joyful. And you see, I want to jump down uh, to the next couple verses of 2 Corinthians 8, because Paul's going to reference what I believe is what made them joyful, what made them generous, and that's when he's going to talk about Jesus. He's going to talk about Christ's generosity. Because even as he's going to call the Corinthian church to be generous and us to be generous, he doesn't just point to the example of the Macedonians and say, be like them, like do what they did. He could do that. He kind of does that. But more so, he's going to point to Jesus and say, look at what he did. Look how generous he was, if you want a model, if you want a motivation. So the second heading, I'm going to have us look at verses 8 and 9 under the heading of Christ's generosity. This is glorious. This is one of my favorite parts of the New Testament. He says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. And hear this, and just think on every word here. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That is good news. This is uh, the gospel, I would say, in financial terms. This is the good news delivered in economic terms, in money terms. Uh, this story of Jesus that we talked about last Sunday, that we talk about every Sunday, he uses financial terms of poor and rich to describe what Jesus has done for us, of his generosity towards us. And he, he starts by saying that he was rich, though he was rich. That's how Jesus began. That's how the Lord Jesus Christ began, was that he was inherently rich. And I think if we just start thinking about his life as beginning in Bethlehem, that might be lost on us of how truly rich he was. That he existed long before he was born in that stable in Bethlehem. He had existed for all eternity. 
as God the Son, second person of the Trinity, Jesus uh, had always enjoyed the fellowship of the Father and the Spirit for eternity past. You want to talk about rich. Imagine that. And then as they chose to create, and they created the heavens and the earth, there was now these angels and these beings who would worship him, who would worship the Father, who would worship the Son. Imagine that. He was worshipped. He had everything at his disposal. Even after they created the earth and even after the fall of human beings and the fall of our world, Jesus had everything at his disposal in heaven prior to becoming a human. He could do what he wanted. He could have anything that he wished. And nothing was too expensive for him. That's not even a category. Nothing was too costly for him. He was rich beyond what we can even describe. Not with money, but with everything else. Every goodness you can possibly imagine. He was rich. Paul says that he did something then for our sake. As one who had everything, he decided to do something. He was moved to do something for our sake. And what he did was he became, Paul used this term, he became poor. For our sake, he became poor. This is not just talking about poverty, uh, although I think it, it partially is, of, the, of his family and of their lack of money and finance. But think of what he was doing as he left heaven and became a human being. Think of what a downgrade of wealth that is. What a loss as, in terms of resources and experience of him. Jesus became a human being. All of our existence start as human beings. He became a human being. He humbled himself to become a human being, and he took on a body. He took on a physical body. Think about this. He moved from the throne of heaven to the womb of a poor Jewish girl. From the throne of heaven to the womb of a poor Jewish girl. He was born then, if you just think in purely human terms, he was born in a stable and laid in a feeding trough when he was born. His family, in the first years of his life, had to flee because of threats that were made against them. Threats upon their lives and upon the life of Jesus himself. He, his family was literally, legitimately poor. They did not have a lot of wealth. And he was part, in a bigger scale, part of a people, the, the nation of Israel, who were under the thumb of the Roman government who was weak and vulnerable as a nation. And as he grew up, and especially the last few years of his life, he was mistreated. The one who had been praised and worshipped was mistreated. He was mocked. He was betrayed by one of his friends. And ultimately, Christ's lowering of himself, his, his uh, making himself poor, allowing himself to become poor, led to him giving up his very life upon the cross having even his dignity stripped of him. Like stripped naked on the cross and crucified in front of onlooking crowd who was mocking him, making fun of him and despising him. And he was even more, he was forsaken by God the Father. The favor and the blessing he had experienced for eternity, he allowed himself and, and God the Father did this. He was punished by the Father in our place. It was for our sake for our sins, that he experienced these things, that he became poor, beyond poor, beyond poor. He did that, then Paul says, so that we might become 
is. Not just to set some example for us to follow, but for us to become rich, he says. And this is not in a monetary sense. We know that we can become rich when we're united with him because God the Father raised him up from the dead. He had become poorer and poorer and poorer and poorer and poorer and laid in a tomb, stripped of everything, humanly speaking, and even spiritually speaking, but God the Father raised him up from the dead. And notice he's called the Lord Jesus Christ. Like he made him the Lord of everything, of the entire universe, of this new creation. He made him Lord of it all. He rewarded him when he raised him from the dead. And granted, Jesus said that the Father granted him now again all authority in heaven and on earth. That again, there's nothing now that's not at his disposal, that, that is not under his rule. He is in charge of it all. He has all riches once again. And we can share in that. Like he, he did that for our sake so that we might be able to share in that. Because of what Jesus did on the cross and in his resurrection, we can have riches that are beyond what we can possibly imagine. We can have the forgiveness of our sins. We can have eternal life forever with God in the new earth. We can have, we are, if we are united with Jesus, we are adopted into the family of God. You want to talk about a wealthy family? We're adopted into the family of God as his sons and daughters. We're given the Holy Spirit. We're given the church. We're given these abundant blessings as we're united with Christ. And I would point out to us that this is an act of grace, the start of verse 9. Don't miss that. He says, you know that grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that he can give that generously to us, this forgiveness of sin, eternal life, this hope of resurrection, is not because we're deserving of it. Like his generosity towards us, his lowering of himself, to his making himself poor to give to us, isn't because he looked at us and thought, you know what, those people, they're pretty good. Like they just need a little bit of help. Like I just want to invest in them. He looked at us and saw rebels and sinners people who rejected him, people who denied him, and he became poor for us, for us, so that we might become rich. He looked at us not with awe and being impressed, but with pity and with compassion and with love and allowed himself to be crushed and then raised from the dead so that we might become rich. You want to talk about generosity? There is no better example you can look to. The Macedonians' generosity is blown out of the water by Christ's generosity. And the reason they're generous is because Christ was generous to them. And so now on this receiving end of that generosity, what God calls us to do, what he called the Macedonians to do, what he calls the Corinthians to do, what he calls us to do is to extend generosity to others. As people who've been recipients of this, we extend it to others. And I think we see here, just in summarizing this part of chapter 8, that thankfulness is what is the fuel for generosity. Thankfulness for what Christ has done for us, what he has given to us, what he has granted us, that thankfulness should well up in our hearts so that it overflows in us in generosity. That, that we give because we are spiritually rich. Because we're spiritually rich, I say we can be financially generous. Because of the riches that we can share in Christ, we can, we can be more generous with the blessings that God gives to us. We don't have to, as Christians, we don't have to and we should not cling to money as if it's our source of peace and security and joy. We don't hold on to money. We don't idolize it. We don't worship it and cling to it as if it's our source of security. We cling to Christ for that. 
when we hold, I will say this, when we hold tightly to our Savior Jesus, we should hold loosely to our money. When we hold tightly to him and we don't, we don't look to the things of this world for satisfaction and security, it, when we cling to him, the sure and steady anchor that is with God the Father, then it allows us to hold on to our resources and our, our, our finances with far looser grip and be more generous with it. And other motivations other than the thankfulness of, for Christ just simply won't do for Christians. They're not going to motivate us to be generous. They're, they're not going to... Uh, we should not be people... I'll say this. We should not be people who are only generous when we are abounding with possessions. When we have everything we want in this earth and in this life and then we have some cushion room on top of that, that's when we're generous. That is not how we should be as God's people. Like the Macedonians were not like that. They had, they had very little, almost nothing. And they were still generous. They didn't have all their bases and their needs covered. They were still generous. And they were generous because they were thankful. Excess and abundance should not be the fuel for our generosity. Thankfulness for Christ should be the fuel for our generosity. So we seek the Macedonians' generosity and most importantly see Christ's generosity. But I want to jump now to chapter 9. We're going to skip over some things and go to chapter 9. I want to read about how Paul then talks to the Corinthians, calling them to be generous. Because he's going he's gonna to press in a bit on them as an apostle, as the one who, who loves them and cares for them. He's going to press upon them to actually be generous towards this common fund that's going to go to Jerusalem. So under this heading, I'm going to read actually a decent chunk. I'm going to read this whole chapter. So it's a short chapter. It's just 15 verses. I want to read this chapter, 2 Corinthians 9, and then we'll walk back through it and see how Paul appeals to them to be generous and then what the Spirit would say through this word to us about our own generosity. So follow along with me, chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians. So Paul continues writing this. He says, Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you had promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness you will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, 
but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By the approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So Paul here, he leans into the Corinthians. He, he, this is a church he loves, and he is going to call upon them to be generous to this fund that's going to be taken to Jerusalem here in these verses. He's not just writing them about the example of the Macedonians, like, hey, didn't they do great? And wasn't Christ's work wonderful? He shares those things, and then he applies the work of Jesus to them and saying, now you be this way. You live like him. You be generous. And I, I'll point out the first handful of verses, maybe the first five or so, I'll maybe summarize this way, is that Paul is trying to highlight the difference between wanting to give and actually giving. He, he, he highlighted for them that he knows that they've been ready to give, verse 2. He's even bragged about it to these churches, like, hey, this, this, this church in Corinth, they are ready to be generous, man. I tell you what, like, they are ready to give towards this fund to help brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. He knows they've been ready to do it. They've been ready, he even says, for over a year to give to this fund that's being collected. He even says in verse 5 that they've promised to do it. Did you catch that? They had promised as a church to be generous in this way. But the question now is, will they actually do it? Just wanting to give is not actually giving. Wanting to give doesn't actually help the people in Jerusalem. It doesn't actually benefit them. He's calling upon them to actually give, to move from just readiness and liking the idea of generosity to actually being generous themselves. But he's not going to twist their arm and impose a law upon them. Did you notice in verse 5, he's saying that he wants it to be a willing gift, not an exaction. Not like they're going to go into their homes and, and take money from them and force them to do it. But he wants their generosity to be willing. And even in verse 7, he says that he wants them as they give to be cheerful as they do it. To not be reluctant, like, man, I wish I didn't have to do this. And to not do it under compulsion, he says. Like, man, I feel like if I don't do this, Paul's going to, and Titus, and these other guys he's going to send, they're going to be upset with us, and they're going to give us a bad report to everybody. He doesn't want them to give that way. He wants them to give cheerfully. He wants them to give uh, freely as a willing gift. And I was thinking about this. I don't know how often you all go out to eat. My favorite place, I go to McDonald's, where this would not be referenced. But if you go to a sit-down place where you pay with a card and you have a waiter, waitress, uh, if you think about what happens at the very end of the meal, okay, after you've eaten, you've had your food and drink, you're going to pay with a card, let's say. They take your card, they go swipe it, they bring it back. And when you look at that bill, there's the amount you pay for the food itself and the drinks themselves. But then there's two things that can get and do get added on to that, right? At the end of that, there's a tax and then there's a tip. There's a tax and a tip. The tax, sometimes we don't even look at. It's just a flat rate, depending on the state or locality. It just gets automatically, no questions asked. You cannot get out of it. It just gets added on to the bill. 
The tip, however, is something that you freely give, that you voluntarily give, that it's up to you to determine, do I want to give, be stingy and give just a little bit because either service was bad or because I don't think I have enough money this week, or do I want to be generous because service was good or they've had a hard time, I just want to represent Christ well with them, whatever. It's a free gift that you give then to the waiter or waitress. And I think there's an important distinction for us to think about when we think of our generosity as Christians, whether it's to the church or to mission efforts or to individuals, is do we think of that generosity as a tax or do we think of it in the category of a tip? Do we think of it as something that, man, just off the top, no matter what, I just got to coldly give whatever percent I think is right or mandatory for a Christian to give or a person to do, and I just do it out of duty and obligation? Or do I view this as a voluntary gift? As something that I have choice and that I have freedom to give, that I have freedom to be led by God as to how to give, how generous to be. I think that is important for us because I grew up, nobody taught me this, but I just thought of generosity as a Christian as a tax. As it's just a certain part of my, my, my budget just needs to come right off the books, right at the beginning, and it was just a habit, it was a ritual, it was a duty, it was an obligation. And Paul is saying, do not let your generosity be like that. Give cheerfully, give gladly, give willingly uh, to the cause of God's people, to the advance of his gospel. Now, Paul, no doubt, is urging them to give, right? He says that in verse 5. I, I was kind of thinking of, you know, when some restaurants have, like, a suggested tip? I don't know. I never know what to do with that when they put that on there. It's kind of like you don't have to give it, but they're suggesting to you. I want you to maybe Paul is kind of doing that, like, hey, you have freedom in what you give or don't give, Corinthians, but I am urging you to be generous because Christ has been generous to you. So he, he points them, has pointed them back to Christ. But he also, I want to point out in this section, he's pointing them ahead to the result of their generosity. He's pointing them ahead to what's going to come about because of their generosity. And, and the fruit of it, what the fruit of it is going to be. And I'll just sit and mention briefly, as you get into verse 6 and down through the first part of 11, he gets into this talk about sowing and reaping. And some people grossly misuse this text. To, to talk that in the way that if you just sow seeds of money and invest it for God's purposes, God is just going to make you abound and give you wealth that you cannot even possibly imagine. So give us money, give us money, and God will give back to you. That is not what this text is trying to say. That, that it's not as if God is just some, some high-yield stock investment. That if I just give enough money to him, I'm going to get back tenfold what I put in. That is not how God works. We, God is not in our debt when we are generous as his people. But the principle is there that when we sow sparingly, the benefit of it is going to be smaller. And when we sow the seeds of our generosity wider and more freer, that the benefit of that is going to be more. He does talk about how God is going to, in a sense, give more seed for you, but he says it's going to be to sow more seed, not just to store up for yourself and just enjoy these things, but that he'll replenish those things uh, for you to continue to be generous. But more, more so, he says that there's going to be this increase of righteousness. Do you see that? Uh, this increase of righteousness is going to be what comes. The, this harvest of righteousness. You see that at the end of verse 10. It's not just going to be an increase of my own pocketbook, an increase of my own portfolio, an increase of my account balance, but an increase in righteousness that comes about from my investment. 
but more so what you see is the more predominant theme as he's pointing them ahead to the fruit of what's going to come from their generosity is thanksgivings that are going to come about. You see that in the second half of verse 11 and so on. I'll, I'll point out a few places here where he says this. In verse 11, he says, you'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. So again, not to just give more for yourself, but to be generous. And he says that generosity through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Not just that people are going to come back to you, Corinthians, and say, thank you so much, brothers and sisters, but they're going to give thanks to God. And then he keeps going. In verse 12, he says this ministry of service, it's not only supplying the needs of the saints, it's definitely doing that, but it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. So again, he says this, second time in a matter of two sentences, there's going to be these thanks that are given to God on behalf of the people who are recipients of your generosity. And then in verse 13, he says, by their approval of this service, they'll glorify God because of your submission, because of your generosity that you demonstrated to them. So three times he's saying, these people who are recipients of your generosity, especially if they're brothers and sisters in Christ, they're going to thank God because of your generosity to them. They're going to express thanks to him. They're going to honor him. They're going to praise him because of what you gave to them, because of the ways that you served them, the ways that you cared for them. And that should be appealing to us. Because our lives should be about more than just getting pats on our own back. Our lives should be about more than just making ourselves feel good, uh, more than just even more than even just doing nice things for people. The ultimate aim of everything we do in life should be that God is honored, that He's glorified, that He is seen as good, that He is worshipped, and that our generosity is just one means by which we can ensure that that happens. Because as people are recipients of your generosity, they're going to turn around and they're going to see through you. They're going to see God's generosity to them. And they're going to praise him. They're going to thank him. They're going to, to praise him for his goodness to them through your generosity. I want you to know, I, I get the privilege often, and I know that other pastors do as well, of getting to hear some of these expressions of thankfulness, even from our missionaries. People, as we give our funds together and then we give to them to supply their need to do their work of gospel spreading all over this planet, they regularly, as they have opportunity, say not just thank you to us, but they say, I thank God for you all. Thank you. I thank God for your generosity as my brothers and sisters back home. I want you to know that our staff, part of our, our budget as a church family goes to funding our staff here locally to be freed up from other work, to be able to minister to you and minister to people in our community. And we regularly seek to thank God together for your generosity that frees us up to minister and to do what God has called us to do. Your generosity overflows in thankfulness to God and thanksgiving to God here in our town and all over the world. And so thankfulness is a fruit of generosity as well. It fuels it and the, the inner workings of our heart, but it also uh, brings about a fruit of, our generosity brings about a fruit of thankfulness in others all over this planet. We don't know, at least to the best of my knowledge, how the Corinthian church responded to this. We don't have a third Corinthians where we can, uh, well, there's a hidden letter that we, or a missing letter we don't know about. Uh, I won't get into all that, but we don't know uh, how they responded definitely after this. We don't know, did they give? Were they generous? Were they stingy? We don't know. Uh, but what we can know is how we respond to this. 
Because this same word that came from the Apostle Paul to this church now comes to us. The same call to be generous now comes to us. And I want to share just a few quick words of application when it comes to our generosity. Our generosity as individuals and as a church. Some things I would want us to remember from these texts. The first one is this, and I return to this all the time, is before you ever even think about the actual act of giving or how much to give or who to give to is first to remember the gospel. Remember the good news of Christ and his generosity to you. Did you catch that uh, in verse uh, 13? Paul tied the, the generosity of the Corinthians with their confession of the gospel of Christ. He says that the, the people in Macedonia are going to know that, they, that your generosity comes from your confession of the gospel, that you believe in Christ and his generosity, and that's what makes you generous. And I would just encourage us, if we feel stingy, if we feel convicted, if we feel like our heart is lagging in cheerfulness of giving towards God's work and towards the care of other people, then we should look first to the cross. We should look to the empty tomb and see the one who became poor so that we might become rich. That is what will fuel motivation. That is what will move upon your heart to be generous in little or in a lot. And we should let our hearts melt in thankfulness for him. Think think upon the cross and the resurrection and try to not be generous then. We can't do it. We shouldn't do it. So first we should remember the gospel as we come to our own generosity. But second I would say this is don't just desire to give. Give. Many of us like the idea, I, I hope all of us like the idea of being generous. We, I mean, if we don't, I, don't, I don't know what is wrong with us, but we like the idea of being generous. Paul calls for action to be taken. He's saying, I need to actually be generous. Not just in my own mind, but in reality and in flesh and blood. And for some of you, that may mean starting in very small ways. Maybe you're not really generous to others at all. Right now, since starting to take baby steps, so to speak, of generosity, uh, of learning to give, learning to be generous with the means that God has given to you. So we need to move beyond just a desire to give and actually be generous people, actually loosen our grip on our finances and our, our money so that we are generous for the purposes of God. We should be then, as we give, whether that's small or a lot or somewhere in between, we should give freely and cheerfully. Like we give freely and cheerfully. Your generosity, whether it's to a church offering or to missionaries or to individual peoples that you know in the community, these should not be seen by you as a tax, as upon some mandatory part of the Christian life that you just begrudgingly do because you're told to in the Bible. And if you cannot move yourself to give freely and cheerfully, I would have you return to the first thing I said, remember the gospel. Think about it. Keep thinking about it and praying about it and let it melt your heart. And please do not, I'd say this to myself as well, do not use your freedom to give or not give and say, I, I give as I feel led in my heart. Do not use your freedom as a, as a reason, as a ground for stinginess or for idolizing money and putting too much weight in it in your own heart. We should use our freedom to be generous, not to be stingy. So give freely and cheerfully. I would say this from this text, even from the example of Macedonians and the example of Christ, is to give sacrificially. It is so easy for us to just wait until we have excess and abundance and we got everything paid for, every luxury, every item I want, every investment I want to make, and then if I have some left over, I'll give that. 
to the church's fund. I'll give that to missionaries. I'll give that to certain organizations. Then I'll look for opportunities to care for people. May we not be that way. But we're just looking out for number one first and then just waiting for excess to give to others and to give to God. But may we seek to embed that into our lives, to prioritize it, even above and beyond other things. Generosity should flow, I would say, from full hearts, not from full bank accounts. It should, it should come from a heart that is, is thankful beyond words for the grace of Christ to us. I love the story in Luke 21 where Jesus watched this uh, woman put her two coins into the, the coffer there in the temple. While all these other rich people gave uh, from their abundance, this lady gave all that she had. And Jesus said this. He said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. Jesus is commending this, and then we could talk about the whether extremes are healthy and whatnot. Please don't hear me just saying to be wild and crazy, but we as people in general and as principal need to be people who give sacrificially, who give to the point of it constricting us, of, of having to forego certain things, of having, needing to not do certain things we may otherwise do. We should be people who give sacrificially. And we need to be people who, I would say, and hear this the right way, that we, I would say, I didn't know how to say this, but that we give increasingly. That we, we seek to grow in our generosity. Not just, hey, I, I got to a certain point where I, I'm able to do a certain amount of things for people. I'm able to be uh, generous in a certain amount of way, and now I'm good. And now everything new, income, whatever that, that comes to me, I can just use however I see fit. But we should be people who work to increase our generosity works because it results in thanksgiving to God. It results in praising him. We should try to work through ways to be able to have um, more to give, be able to have more freed up to be generous to the work of God. As an aside, I'll say this. Some of you, if you feel like, man, this feels impossible to me. I am so much in debt. I have so much I can't even uh, wrap my head around financially right now. We're going to be offering a financial peace university class uh, starting in January on Wednesday nights. That's a class to help people to get out of debt, to, to learn to, to think through money in, in ways that are more productive, more fruitful, more God-honoring. And if you'd be interested in that, I'd encourage you to contact us in the church office and look for some more information in the next few weeks. But give increasingly, I was saying, the last one I would say is this, is to give confidently. Give confidently that God, through your generosity, is going to expand righteousness. He is going to increase the thanks that are given to him. He is going to, as we fund missionaries, as we fund gospel works of the church family, that is increasing the, the praise of God all over this planet. There are people, there are men and women who will come to know Christ uh, and who will praise him because of, our, and humanly speaking, because of our generosity and freeing people to go do that. And the same will happen here locally. And so I would encourage you to not just remember what you are foregoing when you give. Like, man, now I can't do this. Now I can't do this. Don't just remember what you're foregoing, but remember what you're enabling through your generosity. You're enabling the gospel to be advanced. You're enabling the gospel to spread all over this world. I love how Paul ended verse 15. He said, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And he was talking about the grace of God. You see uh, just a few phrases before. The grace of God is this inexpressible gift. And Paul is just is like erupting. And thanks be to God for it. 
with this grace that he showed, this one who was rich, who became poor for our sake so that we could become rich. Praise be to God. And he's calling upon these people then to be generous as ones who, who received that. And he's calling upon us to do the same.